Section 35 of The Great Events by Famous Historians. Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians. Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Stephen usurps the English crown, his conflicts with Matilda, decisive influence of the church, A.D. 1135 to 1154, by Charles Knight, Part 2. The marches and sieges, the revolts and treacheries of this evil time are occasionally buried by incidents which illustrate the state of society. Robert Fitzherbert, with a detachment of the Earl of Gloucester's soldiers, surprised the castle of Devices, which the king had taken from the Bishop of Salisbury. Robert Fitzherbert varies the atrocities of his fellow barons by robbing his prisoners with honey and exposing them naked to the sun. But Robert having obtained devices, refused to admit the Earl of Gloucester to any advantage of its possession, and commenced the subjection of the neighborhood on his own account. Another crafty baron, John Fitzgilbert, held the castle of Marlborough, and Robert Fitzherbert, having an anxious desire to be lord of that castle also, endeavoring to cajole Fitzgilbert into the admission of his followers, went there as a guest, but was detained as a prisoner. Upon this, the Earl of Gloucester came in force for revenge against his treacherous ally, Fitzherbert, and, conducting him to Devizes, there hanged him. The surprise of Lincoln Castle, upon which the events of 1141 mainly turned, is equally characteristic of the age. Ranulph, Earl of Chester, and William de Rumer, his half-brother, were above friends of King Stephen, but their ambition took a new direction for their support for Matilda. The garrison of Lincoln had no apprehension of a surprise, and were busy in those sports which hardy men enjoy even amid the rougher sport of war. The Countess of Chester and her sister-in-law, with a politeness that the ladies of the court of Louis Le Grand could not excel, paid a visit to the wife of the knight who had the defense of the castle. While there, at this pleasant morning call, talking and joking with the unsuspecting matron, as Ordericus relates, the Earl of Chester came in without his armor or even his mantle, attended only by three soldiers. His courtesy was as flattering as that of his countess and her friend. But his men-at-arms suddenly mustered the unprepared guards, and the gates were thrown open to Earl William and his numerous followers. The earls, after this stratagem, held the castle against the king who speedily marched to Lincoln, but the Earl of Chester contrived to leave the castle, and soon raised a powerful army of his own vassals. The Earl of Gloucester 
joined him with a considerable force, and they together advanced to the relief of the besieged city. The Battle of Lincoln was preceded by a trifling incident to which the chroniclers have attached importance. It was the feast of the purification, and at the mass, which was celebrated at the dawn of day, when the king was holding a lighted taper in his hand, it was suddenly extinguished. This was an omen of sorrow to the king, says Hoviden. But another chronicler, the author of the Gesta Stephanie, tells us, in addition, that the wax candle was suddenly relighted, and he accordingly argues that this incident was a token that for his sins he should be deprived of his crown, but on his repentance through God's mercy he should wonderfully and gloriously recover it. The king had been more than a month laying siege to the castle, and his army was encamped around the city of Lincoln. When it was ascertained that his enemies were at hand, he was advised to raise the siege and march out to strengthen his power by a general levy. He decided upon instant battle. He was then exhorted not to fight on the solemn festival of the purification, but his courage was greater than his prudence or his piety. He set forth to meet the insurgent earls. The best knights were in his army, but the infantry of his rivals was far more numerous. Stephen detached a strong body of horse and foot to dispute the passage of a fort of the Trent. But Gloucester, by an impetuous charge, obtained possession of the fort, and the battle became general. The king's horsemen fled. The desperate bravery of Stephen and the issue of the battle have been described by Henry of Huntington with singular animation. King Stephen, therefore, with his infantry, stood alone in the midst of the enemy. These surrounded the royal troops, attacking the columns on all sides, as if they were assaulting a castle. Then the battle raged terribly round this circle. Helmets and swords gleamed as they clashed, and the fearful cries and shouts re-echoed from the neighboring hills and city walls. The cavalry, furiously charging the royal column, slew some and trampled down others. Some were made prisoners. No respite, no breathing time was allowed, except in the quarter in which the king himself had taken his stand, where the assailants recoiled from the unmatched force of his terrible arm. The Earl of Chester, seeing this, and envious of the glory the king was gaining, threw himself upon him with the whole weight of his men-at-arms. Even then the king's courage did not fail, but his heavy battle-axe gleamed like lightning striking down some, bearing back others. At length it was shattered by repeated blows. Then he drew his well-tried sword, with which he wrought wonders, until that too was broken, perceiving which William the Cames, a brave soldier, 
rushed on him, and seizing him by his helmet, shouted, Here, here, I have taken the king. Others came to his aid, and the king was made prisoner. After the capture of King Stephen, at this brief but decisive battle, he was kept a close prisoner at Bristol Castle. Then commenced what might be called the reign of Queen Matilda, which lasted about eight months. The defeat of Stephen was the triumph of the greater ecclesiastics on the third Sunday in Lent, 1141. There was a conference on the plain in the neighborhood of Winchester, a day dark and rainy, which portended disasters. The Bishop of Winchester came forth from his city with all the pomp of the Pope's legate, and there Matilda swore that in all matters of importance, and especially in the bestowal of bishoprics and abbeys, she would submit to the church, and the bishop and his supporters pledged their faith to the empress on these conditions. After Easter, a great council was held at Winchester, which the bishop called as the Pope's vice-regent. The unscrupulous churchman boldly came forward and denounced his brother, inviting the assembly to elect a sovereign, and, with an amount of arrogance totally unprecedented, thus asserted the notorious untruth that the right of electing a king of England principally belonged to the clergy. The case was yesterday agitated before a part of the higher clergy of England, to whose right it principally pertains to elect the sovereign, and also to crown him, first then, as is fitting, invoking God's assistance, we elect the daughter of that peaceful, that glorious, that rich, that good, and in our times incomparable king, as sovereign of England and Normandy, and promise her fidelity and support. The bishop then said to the applauding assembly, We have dispatched messengers for the Londoners, who, from the importance of their city in England, are almost nobles, as it were, to meet us on this business. The next day the Londoners came. They were sent, they said, by their fraternity to entreat that their lord, the king, might be liberated from captivity. The legate refused them, and repeated his oration against his brothers. It was a work of great difficulty to soothe the minds of the Londoners, and St. John's Day had arrived before they would consent to acknowledge Matilda. Many parts of the kingdom had then submitted to her government, and she entered London with great state. Her nature seems to have been rash and imperious. Her first act was to demand subsidies of the citizens, and when they said that their wealth was greatly diminished by the troubled state of the kingdom, she broke forth into insufferable rage. The vigilant queen of Stephen, who kept possession of Kent, now approached the city with a numerous force, and by her envoys demanded her husband's freedom. Of course, her demand was made in vain. She then put forth a front of battle 
instead of being crowned at Westminster, the daughter of Henry I fled in terror, for the whole city flew to arms at the ringing of the bells, which was the signal for war, and all with one accord rose upon the Countess of Anjou and her adherents, as swarms of wasps issue from their hives. William Fitzstephen, the biographer of Thomas of Becket, in his description of London, supposed to be written about the middle of the reign of Henry II, says of this city, ennobled by her men, graced by her arms, and peopled by a multitude of inhabitants, that in the wars under King Stephen there went out to a master of armed horsemen, esteemed fit for war, 20,000, and of infantry, 60,000. In general, the description of London appears trustworthy, and in some instances is supported by other authorities. But this vast number of fighting men must, unquestionably, be exaggerated, unless, as Lyttelton conjectures, such a master included the militia of Middlesex, Kent, and other counties adjacent to London. Peter of Blois, in the reign of Henry II, reckons the inhabitants of the city at 40,000, that the citizens were trained to warlike exercises, and that their manly sports nurtured them in the hardihood of military habits. We may well conclude from Fitzstephen's account of this community at a little later period than that of which we are writing. To the north of the city were pasture lands, with streams on whose banks the clack of many mills was pleasing to the ear, and beyond was an immense forest, with densely wooded thickets, where stags, fallow deer, boars, and wild bulls had their coverts. We have seen that in the charter of Henry I, the citizens had liberty to hunt through a very extensive district, and hawking was also among their free recreations. Football was the favorite game, and the boys of the schools and the various guilds of craftsmen had eat their ball. The elder citizens came on horseback to see these contests of the young men. Every Sunday in Lent, a company with lances and shields went out to joust. In the Easter holidays, they had river tournaments. During the summer, the youths exercised themselves in leaping, archery, wrestling, stone throwing, slinging javelins, and fighting with bucklers. When the great marsh which washed the walls of the city on the north was frozen over, sliding, sledging, and skating were the sports of crowds. They had sham fights on the ice, and legs and arms were sometimes broken. But, says Fitzstephen, youth is an age eager for glory, and the series of victory, and so young men engage in counterfeit battles, that they may conduct themselves more valiantly in real ones. That universal love of hardy sports which is one of the greatest characteristics of England, and from which we derive no little of that spirit 
which keeps our island safe, is not of modern growth. It was one of the most important portions of the education of the people seven centuries ago. It was this community, then so brave, so energetic, so enriched by commerce above all the other cities of England, that resolutely abided by the fortunes of King Stephen. They had little to dread from any hostile assaults of the rival faction, for the city was strongly fortified on all sides except of the river. But on that side it was secure, after the tower was built. The palace of Westminster had also a breastwork and bastions. After Matilda had taken her hasty departure, the indignant Londoners marched out, and they sustained a principal part in what has been called the rout of Winchester, in which Robert, Earl of Gloucester, was taken prisoner. The ex-empress escaped to devices. The capture of the Earl of Gloucester led to important results, as convention was agreed to between the adherents of each party that the king should be exchanged for the Earl. Stephen was once more every inch a king, but still there was no peace in the land. The Bishop of Winchester had again changed his side. In the hour of success, the Empress Matilda had refused the reasonable request that Prince Eustace, the son of Stephen, should be put in possession of his father's earldom of Boulogne. Malmesbury says, A misunderstanding arose between the legate and the Empress, which may be justly considered as the melancholy cause of every subsequent evil in England. The chief actors in this extraordinary drama present a curious study of human character. Matilda, resting her claim to the throne upon her legitimate descent from Henry I, who had himself usurped the throne, possessing her father's courage and daring, with some of his cruelty, haughty, vindictive, furnishes one of the most striking portraits of the proud lady of the feudal period, who shrank from no danger by reason of her sex, but made the homage of chivalry to woman a powerful instrument for enforcing her absolute will. The Earl of Gloucester, the illegitimate brother of Matilda, brave, steadfast, of a free and generous nature, a sagacious counselor, a lover of literature, appears to have had few of the vices of that age, and most of its elevating qualities. Of Stephen, it has been said, he deserves no other reproach than that of having embraced the occupation of a captain of banditti. This appears rather a harsh judgment from a philosophical writer, bearing in mind that the principle of election prevailed in the choice of a king. Whatever was the hereditary claim, and seeing how welcome was the advent of Stephen when he came, in 1135, to avert the dangers of the kingdom, he merits the title of a captain of banditti, no more 
than Harold or William the Conqueror. After the contests of six years, the victories, the defeats, the hostility of the church, his capture and imprisonment, the attachment of the people of the great towns to his person and government appears to have been unshaken. When he was defeated at Lincoln and led captive through the city, the surrounding multitude were moved with pity, shedding tears and uttering cries of grief. Ordericus says, the king's disaster filled with grief the clergy and monks and the common people, because he was condescending and courteous to those who were good and quiet, and if his treacherous nobles had allowed it, he would have put an end to their rapacious enterprises, and being a generous protector and benevolent friend of the country. The fourth and not least remarkable personage of this history is Henry, the Bishop of Winchester, and the Pope's legate. At that period, when the functions of churchmen and statesmen were united, we find this man the chief instrument for securing the crown for his brother. He subsequently becomes the vice-regent of the papal see. Stephen, with more justice than discretion, is of opinion that bishops are not doing their duty when they build castles, ride about in armor with crowds of retainers, and are not at all scrupulous in appropriating some of the booty of a lawless time, from the day when he exhibited his hostility to fighting bishops, the Pope's legate was his brother's deadly enemy. But he found that the rival whom he had set up was by no means a pliant tool in his hands, and he then turned against Matilda. When Stephen had shaken off the chains with which he was loaded in Bristol Castle, the bishop summoned a council at Westminster on his legatine authority, and there, by great powers of eloquence, endeavored to extenuate the odium of his own conduct, affirming that he had supported the empress, not from inclination, but necessity. He then commanded on the part of God and of the Pope that they should strenuously assist the king, appointed by the will of the people, and by the approbation of the Holy See. Mountsbury, who records these doings, adds that a layman sent from the Empress affirmed that her coming to England had been effected by the legate's frequent letters, and that her taking the king and holding him in captivity had been done principally by his connivance. The reign of Stephen is not only the most perfect condensation of all the ills of feudality, but affords a striking picture of the ills which befall a people when an ambitious hierarchy swayed to and fro at the will of a foreign power, regards the supremacy of the church as the one great object to be attained, at whatever expense of treachery and falsehood, of national degradation and general suffering. In 1142, the civil war 
is raging more fiercely than ever. Matilda is at Oxford, a fortified city, protected by the Thames, by a wall and by an impregnable castle. Stephen, with a body of veterans, wades across the river and enters the city. Matilda and her followers take refuge in the keep. For three months the king presses the siege, surrounding the fortress on all sides. Famine is approaching to the helpless garrison. It is the Christmas season. The country is covered with deep snow. The Thames and the tributary rivers are frozen over. With a small escort, Matilda contrives to escape and passes undiscovered through the royal posts. On a dark and silent night, when no sound is heard but the clang of a trumpet or the challenge of a sentinel. In the course of the night, she went to Abingdon on foot and afterwards reached Wallingford on horseback. The author of the Gesta Stephanie expresses his wonder at the marvelous escapes of this courageous woman. The changes of her fortune are equally remarkable. After the flight from Oxford, the arms of the Earl of Gloucester are again successful. Stephen is beaten at Wilton and retreats precipitately with his military brother, the Bishop of Winchester. There are now, in the autumn of 1142, universal turmoil and desolation. Many people emigrate. Others crowd round the sanctuary of the churches and dwell there in mean hovels. Famine is general. Fields are white with ripened corn, but the cultivators have fled, and there is none to gather the harvest. Cities are deserted and depopulated. Fierce foreign mercenaries, for whom the barons have no pay, pillage the farms and the monasteries. The bishops, for the most part, rest supine amid all this storm of tyranny. When they rouse themselves, they increase, rather than mitigate the miseries of the people. Milo, Earl of Hereford, has demanded money of the Bishop of Hereford to pay his troops. The Bishop refuses, and Milo seizes his lands and goods. The Bishop then pronounces sentence of excommunication against Milo and his adherents, and lays an interdict upon the country subject to the Earl's authority. We might hastily think that the slammed curse pronounced against the nation or a district was an unmeaning ceremony, with its bell, book, and candle, to terrify only the weak-minded. It was one of the most outrageous of the numerous ecclesiastical tyrannies. The cancellations of religion were eagerly sought for and justly prized by the great body of the people, who earnestly believed that a happy future would be a reward for the patient endurance of a miserable present, as they were admitted to the Holy Communion. They recognized an acknowledgement of the equality of man before the Great Father of all. Their marriages were blessed and their funerals were hallowed, under an interdict, all the churches were shut. No knell was told for the dead. 
for the dead remained unburied. No merry peals welcomed the bridal procession, for no couple could be joined in wedlock. The awe-stricken mother might have her infant baptized, and the dying might receive extreme unction. But all public offices of the church were suspended. If we imagine such a condition of society in a village devastated by fire and sword, we may wonder how a free government and Christian church have ever grown up among us. If Stephen had quietly possessed the throne and his heir had succeeded him, the crowns of England and Normandy would have been disconnected before the 13th century. Geoffrey of Anjou, while his duchess was in England, had become master of Normandy, and its nobles had acknowledged his son Henry as their rightful duke. The boy was in England, under the protection of the Earl of Gloucester, who attended to his education. The great Earl died in 1147. For a few years there had been no decided contest between the forces of the king and the empress. After eight years of terrible hostility and of desperate adventure, Matilda left the country. Stephen made many efforts to control the license of the barons, but with little effect. He was now engaged in another quarrel with the church. His brother had been superseded as legate by Theobald, Archbishop of Canterbury. In consequence of the death of the Pope, who had supported the Bishop of Winchester, Theobald was Stephen's enemy, and his hostility was rendered formidable by his alliance with Bigad, the Earl of Norfolk. The Archbishop excommunicated Stephen and his adherents, and the King was enforced to submission. In 1150, Stephen, having been again reconciled to the church, sought the recognition of his son Eustace as the heir to the kingdom. This recognition was absolutely refused by the archbishop, who said that Stephen was regarded by the papal see as an usurper. But time was preparing a solution of the difficulties of the kingdom. Henry of Anjou was grown into manhood, born in 1133. He had been knight by his uncle, David of Scotland, in 1149. His father died in 1151, and he became not only Duke of Normandy, but Earl of Anjou, Touraine, and Maine. In 1152, he contracted a marriage of ambition with Eleanor, the divorced wife of Louis of France, and thus became Lord of Aquitaine and Poitou, which Eleanor possessed in her own right, master of all the western coast of France, from the Somme to the Pyrenees, with the exception of Brittany. His ambition, thus strengthened by his power, prepared to dispute the sovereignty of England, with better hopes than ever waited on his mother's career. He landed with a well-appointed band of followers in 1153 and besieged various castles, 
but no general encounter took place. The king and the duke had a conference without witnesses across a rivulet, and this meeting prepared the way for a final pacification. The negotiators were Henry, the bishop, on the one part, and Theobald, the archbishop, on the other. Finally, Stephen led the prince in solemn procession through the streets of Winchester, and all the great men of the realm, by the king's command, did homage, and pronounced the fealty due to their liege lord, to the Duke of Normandy, saving only their allegiance to King Stephen during his life. Stephen's son, Eustace, had died during the negotiations. The troublesome reign of Stephen was soon after brought to a close. He died on the 25th of October, 1154. His constant and heroic queen had died three years before him. End of section 35